Welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, I believe we have two stalkers following us discreetly this week. <laughs> we do indeed. They're uh, dropping in from the ceiling. It's uh, Nathan and Aaron from the Impodible podcast. Welcome aboard, lads. You know, I, I want to object to being called a stalker, but it's fair. It's okay. No, I'm Good totally bit. stalking you guys. <laughs> How are you guys doing? We're doing good. How about you? So let's just start with uh, Nathan. Tell us a little bit about Mission Impossible. Okay, so I've always loved the Mission Impossible TV show so much that like the 96 movie, which is technically our first episode, I have a lot of mixed feelings on. And me, Aaron, and a couple other friends are all in a group thread that we just ended up talking about them. And somebody's like, why isn't there a podcast about it? And me and Aaron were both sort of convinced that we both had said that and somebody inadvertently kind of like came up with the idea for the podcast that we have stolen. So we kind of just go movie by show episode by movie and go through the entire franchise because there's a lot of crazy shit in there and there's a lot of good shit in there. Yeah. We're, as I was say, we're working our way through the first season right now. It is insane. Yeah. Well, we've had, Ghost episodes. I mean, we have LSD sugar cubes coming up soonish. We we have a lot of crazy shit, a lot of crazy guest stars, and yeah. If you just feel like, hey, I didn't know there was a Mission Impossible TV show, we are here with you. We also do a few interviews. We got a lot of cool shit coming up. Yeah, I'm curious, Aaron. How do you view like the franchise as a whole? Is it a franchise to you that always felt confident? Or is it one that took maybe a long time to find its really secure footing or what? Wait, Mission Impossible? Yeah. Uh, so I I was one of the people who discovered it by the movies. Uh, I knew that it existed prior to that. And it wasn't until now that I've gone back to rewatch the show. But I mean, Mission Impossible as a TV series even back in 66 was cleaning up Emmys left and right. Like it hit the ground running and was this massively influential and popular show uh, that lasted about seven years, got remade in the eighties, which, which may or may not have been a writer strike thing. And so it, it's weird and it's goofy and strange, but we still love it. And, and then the movie is just kind of hit with Tom Cruise and what's kind of fun is that for all that they've made, all these different iterations of it, they all technically exist in the exact same canon. There's never been a real honest-to-God reboot. So I'm going to say, yeah, it's a damn fine franchise that's been running strong for about 80 years now. The thing that I find to be very interesting about it, I mean, the movies really don't have... They take a while to get their footing. I would say... Mission Impossible 3 sort of sets the table for 4, 5, 6, and I'll assume 7 and 8 to just sort of keep going. But the the show sort of was the 60s equivalent of like a Game of Thrones where it's like, hey, it's this show that everybody's watching. Right, right. So barring Mission Impossible, obviously I know that's your main passion, but any other films in the spy genre or TV shows that you guys like particularly? Oh man, Ooh. I uh, <laughs> I grew up as like a huge James Bond fan. I I mean, 
Here, here's a little fun fact. On my seventh birthday, I had a 007 birthday, which my dad handed me my first vodka martini, which fucking Whoa. Wisconsin. <laughs> and, and wow. If you guys are not aware, I, I do have uh, very toxic parents. It's brought up in my uh, podcast that I assume they never listen to or do. But, <laughs> but yeah, I grew up a huge Bond fan. I actually... Funny enough, I had a book that was just all the major spy movies, and it was just fucking Men in Black, James Bond. It, it was advertising for Die Another Day at the point. It had Triple X, and then it had Mission Impossible 2, which was funny because once you flip through Triple X and Mission Impossible 2, they kind of look like the same movie. Hmm. Yeah, what about you, Aaron? I was going to say, uh, I was into James Bond as a kid as well. Got into it when GoldenEye came out when I was in junior high and uh, retroactively went through the rest of the franchise and have pretty much watched them all since. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the genre, although I tend to enjoy more realistic spycraft, Tinker Tailor soldier, soldier spy type movies, I find. Uh, or like, I'm a really big fan of Ed Brubaker's Velvet, which oh. is a James Bond-esque comic book, basically where you find out that Money Penny was more badass than Bond, and it's all about her. Not Not literally, but that's essentially what it is. It's a great book. I've heard that's really good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I myself, I also like the very, like, gritty, like, the conversation, Three Days of the Condor, which I know you guys just recently did. Sneakers. Um, mm-hmm. I One of my favorite things that I've ever gotten for my birthday is, around my birthday, uh, Kingsman the Secret Service came out. So I'm a huge fan of goofy spy shit, too. Right, yeah. Yeah, we can't wait to do the Kingsman franchise on the show, for sure. Well, if you need somebody, I am here watching you okay <laughs> well we uh we lured you both in here uh, saying that we were going to cover a mission impossible film but i'm about to rip off my latex mask and get cam to un- unveil what we're covering this week oh fuck. that's right wait <laughs> we are going back to the year 2007 to talk about the third jason Bourne film the Bourne ultimatum what i have amnesia <laughs> i had no idea <laughs> guys i watched mission impossible 3 for this are you kidding <laughs> well so did i to be fair yeah <laughs> like you need an excuse to watch that film i watched mission impossible versus the mob the uh <laughs> the uk cut of two episodes what the fuck guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah so sorry about that gents but uh hopefully you can cast your minds back to 2007 hopefully you caught it in the theaters and have some opinions about it i actually did and do Good stuff. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's let's take off with everyone's favorite, the letterbox.com synopsis. Uh, any bets on length? I'm going to assume not very long. No, I, I'm going to say that it's going to be surprisingly long for uh, the movie of this kind. It's going to get really deep into the twisty weeds. I'm going to say eight lines. So okay, all right, let's do this. The Born Ultimatum. Remember everything, forgive nothing. Bourne is brought out of hiding once again by reporter Simon Ross, who is trying to unveil Operation Blackbriar, an upgrade to Project Treadstone, in a series of newspaper columns. Information from the reporter stirs a new set of memories, and Bourne must finally uncover his dark past while dodging the company's best efforts to eradicate him. 
Okay, that's not so bad. I was when they started naming the journalist, I was like, "We're in trouble here, folks." Yeah, but same. Not, not, not so bad. <laughs> well, it's like the first six lines are basically the opening ten minutes of the film. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'll give this one like a B minus. It's fine. It was eight lines for reference. Nice, bingo, nailed there it. There we go. There we go. So, um, I will throw it out to Nathan and Aaron, our guests, first. Do you guys have any recollection of this when it came out at the time? Yeah. Um yeah. 2007 was an interesting year for movies just in general. I mean we had a lot of great like a lot of people remember 2007 as being a great year cuz you had movies like No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, uh 310 to Yuma, just a lot of like great sort of prestige movies. But it was kind of a dumping ground as far as like disappointing sequels that year. I mean, mm-hmm. we had Spider-Man 3, Shrek the Third, um, one that I actually quite like a lot, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. But for the most part, people really didn't feel positively about most of the movies coming out that blockbuster year. I think uh, one that people were actually more positive on that is now swayed more negative was Transformers, which... I do have fond memories of seeing in a theater, but the Bourne Ultimatum was kind of seen as a bright light in that summer. What about you, Aaron? So I specifically remember seeing this at a Regal Metropolitan Theater uh, with my mom. Uh, and I remember going into this, it was pretty big because like the first Bourne Identity, um, uh, it came out and kind of splash and holy shit, Matt Damon's an action star. And then you get into the supremacy where they hire Paul Greengrass and he kind of explodes the action world with his shaky cam filmography and it's a hit. Um, and so I remember when the third one came out, that was far enough in that you had people who were like, I hate this franchise. It sucks exclusively because of the camera style that they filmed it in. And I remember that, like, in advance, they had kind of talked about the fact that it overlapped with the second one, and, like, it has that weird structure to it, and so, like, I went into this movie very hesitant and a a little worried that it might not be good, and instead witnessed the birth of an entirely new subgenre of film, the the stupid smart movie, or the smart stupid movie. (laughs) And that's not an insult, by the way. Trust me, I, I dig that genre. I just, uh, I, I realized I never really watched this movie in a theater. I remember renting it off of Netflix because at that time, I was constantly searching for more spy movies. And I actually, I was so excited for Casino Royale that I read the book for it. And my parents were like, yeah, we'll take you to go see it till they watched Oprah talk about the ball torture scene. And they're like, we're not show, <laughs> we're not allowing you to see this. We heard about some crazy shit in that. And I'm like, yeah, I read the book. The chief said that he was going to cut off his balls and put them in his mouth. So I heard that it was like the Bourne movies and realized I've never seen any of the Bourne movies. So I kind of watched them all in secret in uh, our camper in my backyard. So I kind of like associate them with being in the camper. But yes, on to you, Cam. Yeah, um, for me, as I've said before, I wasn't like a big fan of the Bourne franchise. They were just movies I watched and really didn't think of past the point of, you know, the two hours I spent with them. 
And I do remember going to this in that disappointing summer you referred to, Nathan, where, you know, I guess the highlights were like super bad came out that summer or also like I was, I did enjoy um, Live Free or Die Hard or Die Hard 4.0 as it's known, you know, on the other side of the pond. Um, Like that was one where I was like, okay, that was kind of fun. But otherwise I was really unhappy with that summer and Spider-Man 3 was a movie that I really was in Phantom Menace Syndrome, convincing myself I liked it a lot, even though I was bothered by a lot of it. But I remember... It's good for one hour. It is, it is, yes. Is it? It is pretty great in parts, in parts. But I remember this came out, and I went and saw it with a buddy, and walked out being like, yeah, I enjoyed it, same as the other Bourne movies. And I really didn't give it maybe the thought it deserved in some ways, Um, but it was a movie I had generally positive thoughts on overall. What about you, Scott? I am continuing my tradition of not having seen them in the cinema. I think in the end, I watched most of the Bourne films on home video some way, either renting or on you know Sky movies, I guess, or HBO would be the American version. Um, so, yeah, I, I did not see it at the time. So I have no memory, unfortunately. Right. Cam, obviously, Nathan mentioned a bit about the year of 2007. But can you give us a bit of information about how Ultimatum came to be? Yeah, so... Ultimatum was a really rough production in a lot of ways. Um, so Paul Greengrass obviously hit it out of the park with Born Supremacy. And as we, you know, we were talking about Spider-Man 3 a couple minutes ago, uh, this kind of fell into that Spider-Man 3 problem where you had a third entry of a franchise that was on like the rise, like the money was really coming in. And a lot of people had a lot of opinions about how the third Born film should come together. And, A lot of the conflict comes from Paul Greengrass and writer Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy had worked on the previous two, and he disagreed with a lot of what Paul Greengrass had done with Supremacy, even though that movie, I think, was a real triumph. But there was some kind of hurt feelings there. Somehow, Tony Gilroy made a deal with the studio that he would write a first draft of um, The Bourne Ultimatum with no input, and he would only do one draft. I have no idea how this works, and he would get a massive amount of money. And so he delivered a draft that did not go over well. I have a quote from Matt Damon about that draft. He says, I don't blame Tony for taking a boatload of money and handing in what he handed in. It's just that it was unreadable. This is a career ender. I mean, I could put this thing up on eBay, and it would be game over for that dude. It's terrible. It's really embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. I actually remember the story of that going on. Not the quote. I never knew the quality of the script. That is delightful. That's insane. And Matt Damon is not a guy, I think you'd all agree, that is not known to really snipe to the press or, you know, publicly about any of his projects. Yeah, he's not Ed Norton. No. No, yeah. There's a good example. We'll talk about him in the next Bourne film. But, um, yeah, so Tony Gilroy departed after his one draft. And so then they were really like freaked out because they had a hard deadline for this movie. As so often with franchises now, they've got the deadline. The movie has to be made by then. And it's just a race to get it done. They brought in Tom Stoppard, um, who wrote Brazil and Shakespeare in Love. He put something together they did not use at all. Tom Stoppard says they, he doesn't think they used a single word of his script. So then they turned basically to two writers, um, Scott Z. Burns who was a producer on the documentary An Inconvenient Truth, as well as the writer-director of an indie film called um, PU239. Um, he's more notable now for having moved on and done a lot of Steven Soderbergh's movies, like The Informant, Contagion, Side Effects, The Laundromat. 
He also wrote and directed a movie last year called The Report that people should check out. It's really, really good. Um, but he was pretty new at this point. So he was brought in as well as George Nolfi, who'd written Ocean's 12 um, and t- the movie Timeline, the Michael Crichton uh, adaptation. And yeah, basically, yeah. these two guys hammered this movie together um, like at a frantic, frantic pace. And with input, also Paul Greengrass wrote sections himself with the editor, Chris Rouse, who's done several of these Bourne movies, as well as all the other Paul Greengrass films. Basically, it was four writers frantically rewriting this thing to meet a deadline. Um, not the best way to go. Uh, I think you'd agree. Uh, to, to your point, I, I think you're right. And actually, one of the things that fascinates me about the Bourne franchise as a whole is that it's it is all based on a book series, right? Yes. It, it flat out, every single one, there's a Bourne ultimatum, there's a Bourne supremacy, there's a Bourne identity. And also, without exception... Not a single one of them bear almost any resemblance to their source material. Like, they are drastically different with different characters and focuses and storylines. It's, I feel like it's one where Tony Gilroy, like, I I think the actual story was that, like, he had read the book once or along some lines like that and basically just went, nope, this is the story I'm going to write and go with it. So it kind of (laughs) fits. Yeah, because the original novel by Robert Ludlum is about David Webb um, tracking down his old enemy, Carlos the Jackal, who's targeted his family, who's in the Caribbean. Um, none of that is on this is in this film. Yeah, and like the Jackal is the main antagonist of the entire franchise. Yeah, uh, and like he's not even mentioned, I don't think, in the entire film series. It's actually kind of surprising they didn't make the Jackal like the villain of one of the movies. Well, it's also why, and I was dumber when I was younger, uh, but why I thought that the Bourne movies and the actual movie called The Jackal that has Bruce Willis mm-hmm. as the assassin, mm-hmm. like I legit thought that those must have been on the base on the same book series. And it's just because this Carlos the Jackal is kind of a semi-real person, apparently, or at yeah. least I think. And so there's a lot of different characters and media based on them. Right. So basically... When this whole thing was put together, the production itself doesn't sound like it was any real issue in terms of, you know, the day-to-day on set. It was just all writing. It was the frantically rewriting this movie through production. I know that they there was a lot of stories after the fact that both Damon and Greengrass were genuinely shocked that the movie turned out really good and was, like, very well-received because they really thought they had a disaster on their hands. And I'm curious, like, did any of you remember that at the time? I don't remember any of it because... The thing is, with me, I watched all of them back to back, and my only thought was like, "Oh, Tony Gilroy, what a what a writer!" Because, well, these are what Aaron referred to, and I'll agree with dumb smart movies. You know, they're fun, they're loud, they're mindless, they're perfect summer movies. I always thought, "Wow, these are pretty well scripted," and I mm-hmm. always gave all the credit to uh, Gilroy, but I never really realized that. There was so much trouble with this one. Yeah, and I mean, we got to give points to Gilroy. This, you know, the year this comes out, he writes and directs Michael Clayton, which is a fantastic movie, and he was Oscar nominated. So I just think it was creative differences with Greengrass that for some reason, even though they maybe clashed on supremacy, I felt like they really came together in a product that really delivered. And I guess just at this point, the feelings just weren't working out so well. And Gilroy actually uh, later arbitrated. To, with the uh, Writers Guild of America to get sole credit for this film, but was denied. 
Um, to which Matt Damon said, that was just a little bit of justice, I have to say. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I believe that is what the kids call a bad look. Did you say they made that? up again? Or afterwards? Or Matt Damon has since come out and apologized and said, I really shouldn't have said that publicly, you know. But it's a lot of fun to recite now. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. I guess as of 2009, Tony Gilroy had still never seen the Bourne Ultimatum. So (laughs) he was arbitrating at a time where he hadn't even seen the movie, I guess, to even determine if it was based on his stuff. (laughs) Very crazy. Um, Hollywood, man. But nonetheless, the movie um, was a big hit. It had a budget of $110 Domestically, it made $227. International, $217. For a worldwide total of $444 For comparison's uh, sake, uh, Supremacy did $291 million and Identity did $214. So this was considerable growth for a franchise, and I'm sure that Universal was a little nervous, given that this one was sort of written as a trilogy closer. That was going to be one of my questions in the sort of briefing section, was uh, did Matt Damon sign on as this was his, you know, bowing out of the character, his his Wrath of Khan for Spock? Right. Um... I never got that sense. It was more just like you'd get excited about a Paul Greengrass idea and be like, yeah, let's do another one. But a lot of the kind of the buzz around this movie, this ultimatum film was that Matt Damon was like, okay, that's good. I'm okay. He did work with Greengrass again on, you know, the green zone, I think the following year. So it's not like there was hard feelings there. I think just the process of making a franchise that is very lucrative. There's a lot of stresses that come with that. Or as the green zone is known in America as born, but in Iraq this time. (laughs) Very true. Uh, (laughs) This was the era of, we're not quite sure if we're going to keep these franchise goings. Uh, Cause like this was right when the dark Knight came out uh, like the year prior. And I remember Mm -hmm. when that came out too, everyone was like, yeah, you're going to do a third. Right. And the collective group kind of went, probably not. And it wasn't until a few years later that they got Dark Knight Rises. And I remember when this was going on, there was a lot of people going like, well, clearly you're going to make more. And everyone was just going, eh, I'm kind of okay without. This is also the era of trilogies where it's always like, well, you're going to make a trilogy, right? But you would never make a part four or a five necessarily. It's all about the trilogy. Yeah, because only horror movies have four and five, and then they're always bad after that, he says with sarcasm. Yeah, (laughs) 2008 sort of just changed the landscape because, well, we got The Dark Knight, which was kind of a reflection of where franchises were going. Iron Man came out, and then Incredible Hulk and sort of just wiped the table with the idea of franchises reaching like into duologies or trilogies or finding like realism. Yeah, totally. And I mean, this movie was number 11 for the year at the worldwide box office, right between 300 and Live Free or Die Hard slash Die Hard 4.0. So it's in good company. It's it's funny to look back, though, at how big 300 was. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dude, 300 was a thing. It was. It had amazing trailers. Um, as for the uh, top three that year, number one, we referenced it earlier, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End was number one. Number I two. can't believe that's your favorite, Nathan. I never said that was my favorite of the series. <laughs> no, no. No, no. That's official quote. My favorite of the series. No. I'm pretty sure. Did you not? Did you just say you like it? Which is still kind of semi, I'm going to make fun of you for it, even though I do too. Oh, fuck um, you. 
<laughs> no, my favorite of the franchise is Curse of the Black Pearl, as it always will be. Sure. Um, if you want to make fun of me, just bring up Jurassic Park. <laughs> Uh-oh. The Lost World? No. Jurassic Park 3 is incredible. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> Aaron. Well, <laughs> when we do a movie from 2001, you'll have to come back and talk about uh, Jurassic Park 3. Wax poetic. I'm sorry. I can't be responsible for him. I'll be on for Spy Game. (laughs) (laughs) Number two for the year was Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And number three was Spider-Man 3, as we referenced earlier. Um, Some other notables that year. Um, At number 16, you had Ocean's 13, which obviously featured Matt Damon. At number 58, you had Michael Clayton, which we referenced. Tony Gilroy wrote and directed that film. And at number 60, you had the movie Fracture with David Strathern showing up in that. It was a legal drama. Um, And then down at number 108, you had a very serious spy film called Breach with Ryan Felipe and Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper, of course, of The Bourne Identity. Um, Really worth checking out. And we will cover it at some point on the podcast. I really like that movie, Breach. Also, I did too. Also, it's funny to mention, uh, now that I know about this behind-the-scenes struggle between Matt Damon and Tony Gilroy, they make a lot of jokes about the Bourne franchise that are super subtle in Ocean's 13, including, like, a pretty much a roofie drug being called a Gilroy. Oh, my God, <laughs> really? I don't remember yeah, that. Yeah, and oh. even the first scene where Matt Damon shows up, it's done in a shaky cam format. They're following him through, like, some subway, and he's like, I know my cover's blown. I, I don't know where I am. Shit, I don't even know who I am. Wow. I mean, it's very telling that Matt Damon did not go on to work on any um, Tony Gilroy films. But he did go and um, star in one of the other writers, George Nolfi's next film, uh, The Adjustment Bureau. So obviously, Matt Damon more of a fan of George Nolfi than Tony Gilroy. Yeah, it's just crazy. I never had known that. I still can't believe the, uh, the Ocean's 13 thing. That's crazy. Yeah, no, give it a watch. Also, another fun thing to look back at Ocean's 13 about, and I know this isn't an Ocean's 13 podcast, but Al Pacino pretty much plays a parody of Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, big time. Big time. So, yeah, that pretty much wraps me up for this year, and we will talk a lot more about Tony Gilroy when we do the next Bourne film, The Bourne Legacy, because he wrote and directed that. So, to be continued in terms of the Gilroy (laughs) drama, I guess, going forward. But, yeah, moving on, Scott. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's crazy. I saw the top three films of that year in the cinema, but I did never, I never caught the, the Bournes at all. So uh, I'll just carry that tradition on. Um, well, gentlemen, let's get into the meat of the film. There are four of us and we have two guests. Now, we'll start with you, Aaron. What did you think about Bourne Ultimatum when you went back to revisit it in 2020? Uh, uh, I think it's a great action movie. Um, I think Paul Greengrass and uh, Matt Damon are have definitely hit their stride in making effective tense sequences uh, that pull you in and carry you through. Um, there's not a dull one in the movie, and in fact, some of my favorite action movies of the last, or a couple of my favorite action scenes of the last ten years, end up in this franchise in this movie specifically. Um, however, and this is going to come as no surprise considering what we've already talked about, I have issues with the story. Like, I remember even back when I originally saw this, I kind of had a lot of problems with the fact that half of this movie technically take takes place in the Born Supremacy. Um, <laughs> And like, like, like I, I can even remember being in theaters and they get to that scene where it finally catches up and going, 
whoa, what? Like we've done all this just to get to there. Right. Okay. Um, and I do think this movie suffers from, uh, being a smart, dumb movie, which, which we've kind of joked about that a bit. Basically what it is is it's a movie that looks and sounds smart. They're almost always political thrillers. They usually have really good, I'm going to call it in quotes, realistic action. Um, it's more naturalistic action, but they're really just big, dumb action movies. Like the Jack Ryan TV series is the perfect exemplar of this. It's a great show, but it's kind of dumb. Um, and so like this movie is okay. It has some script problems. The character of Bourne doesn't really grow much. Uh, the story is still them dealing with the ramifications of mistakes made before the first movie happens. I, I would like them to move this world forward and keep the same characters. But that action part of it is amazing. So it was good. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just reply to that bit about Jason Bourne's sort of character arc. I was surprised i think when i watched it originally and i rewatched it now how he just doesn't go anywhere in the third film the first two feel like his character grows a little bit but this third one i don't understand why he wants to go back i just i don't get the the emphasis of why he wants to get involved even further in this world that he clearly doesn't like <laughs> well what about you nathan what were your thoughts this time so I rewatched the entire trilogy and listened to your episodes because guess what? I'm a good, I'm a good guest host. You guys can tell all of your friends that. Um, Nerd. <laughs> but I, I've always kind of never had the Bourne films be my thing. You know, I enjoy them as fun little action movies, but I never like get done with one of them. I'm like, man, I need to go see that again. Or man, I need to watch that again. So I hadn't seen them in about 10 years. And, you know, The Bourne Ultimatum is one of those movies where it does exactly what it sets out. And it succeeds at it. It doesn't do anything more than that. But in a lot of ways, it's not. that. That's not so bad. It's a fire and forget, enjoyable, like, time passer. The thing about The Bourne movies is that they're well-directed. Um, up until what I heard just during this podcast, I would say well-written, well-acted, but they're, uh, they're kind of vacuous, you know, they, they're, they're really sort of mindless films. I mean, they don't really require you to have anything but a pulse. Like I could go Mm -hmm. to the bathroom during this movie and ask my roommate who's watching it at the time, Hey man, what's going on? And he'll be like, well, uh, Jason Bourne's trying to figure out who he is and he just beat up like five guys and uh you know the local authorities just figured out where he is and uh you know there's a highly trained agent after him who becomes inept in about 10 minutes isn't it funny you describe most of the scenes from all the three films exactly and that is that's exactly sort of the issue with it but i will say these last two are a testament to paul greengrass as a director which i mean we didn't really mention he just came off of doing United 93, which I think is a legitimately great film. Yeah, that's his uh, best film, I think. Oh, yeah. And his raw documentary style sort of gives this gritty believability to pretty extreme and outlandish sequences. But he does this style of action, the shaky cam, almost like you watched on the street. 
better than any other director. And it was one of those styles that was imitated for a while until I believe, I would say either like, well, to mention Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol or John Wick sort of led to more of these like highly choreographed hand-to-hand combat scenes where you never cut away from it. Well, you referenced earlier The Dark Knight and all of the Nolan action, you know, in those Batman films is completely echoing what's being done by Paul Greengrass here. Yeah, and you can sort of see the pendulum switch over with The Dark Knight Rises on that film where he doesn't cut away as many times. Like, he'll stay Mm -hmm. with Batman during his fight with Bane. And, you know, Paul Greengrass, you say shaky cam and you immediately are like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. This is perhaps the most effective shaky cam action film ever. Like, Bourne versus Dash is one of the best fight scenes of the 2000s. So, like, it's interesting that you you mentioned The Dark Knight with the film style. I remember when this originally came out, and there was a good chunk. Because I I was in college. I had just, like, just gotten out of film school uh, when this had just come out. And a lot of my friends hated it because the dreaded shaky cam. And the way I used to defend this movie was, I would say he shot it like he shoots a comic book film because you get little seconds of imagery and you have just enough time to actually register what you see and yes yes cutting too quickly and all that but he shows you everything you need to see like a little comic book panel just cuts to that cuts to that cuts to that and if you're keeping your eyes on the screen you can usually tell what's going on (laughs) i've come to understand a little bit more the problems that people have with the filming style but it very much felt like a comic book to me when I saw it. Well, like, as far as I look at it, the thing with Paul Greengrass action is he never loses the geography of what's going on. So you're never confused. You may, you know, get kind of caught up in the editing because obviously it's really crazy editing. And, you know, the camera's obviously doing the cinema verite thing where the camera's shaking, but um, it's a handheld camera. But I mean you know what's going on moment to moment. And I think, you know, you look at the imitators, like I think of not just, you know, the Batman films, which are actually really well-made movies. You know, you look at something, say like the Clash of the Titans remake or, um, um, you know, Quantum of Solace, and they don't know how to do it. And it gets actually visually confusing to look at. Um, God, you know, what Quantum do you think? Solace. <laughs> I'm a Quantum of Solace defender, despite that Uh-oh. hardly being a movie. <laughs> it's a great fourth act to Casino Royale. Sure. A great one. Well, we'll have to visit that later down the road. Um, (laughs) Scott, uh, I'm curious, what what were your thoughts visiting at this time? Well, I I just wanted to sort of jump on the bandwagon of uh, the action sequences in this film are terrific. There's no quibble about that. And and you can follow the action through thoroughly. My quibble with the shaky cam footage in this is, is when it comes to the more emotional scenes. There's a scene right at the beginning where Bourne is talking to, I think, Maria's brother. Right. Uh, and they can't hold the frame on Bourne's face. It's like it's like someone's like on a, on a vibrating machine as they're trying to film him. And I just think, like, you can hold the camera steady for this, surely. Actually, funnily enough, a lot of times that's how they do it, is they'll have somebody stand behind the camera operator and try and give it a little shake. And so the camera operator is trying to hold it steady. So you're not wrong. <laughs> so, But like, Scott, did you find, you know, revisiting this movie, like, how did it hold up for you in comparison to Supremacy, which we really enjoyed? I'll, I'll tackle the film itself before I compare it to anything else. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's a terrific action film. Yeah. It's a solid two hours suspense. It keeps you on the edge of your seat, just like Supremacy does. And I suppose I'm comparing at this point. Um, I just feel like it has, it's like, it's one step back from Supremacy in my mind. Right. It's like they built up all this momentum uh, from sort of the character piece of identity to the thriller of Supremacy. And now we just have an action film. Yeah, Supremacy has that revenge arc that drives it like nothing else. Yeah, that's where I came down to. Like, I really loved Supremacy for what it did with the Bourne character. And, you know, you got this revenge slash, you know, kind of wandering samurai storyline that I thought really paid off. This one, it kind of forsakes character to be more of a movie about world building. And I think in terms of Jason Bourne world building, it's really effective when you've got actors like David Strathern or Scott Glenn or Joan Allen speaking this dialogue, I am invested 100%. But it, this movie has, I feel like, a little bit of Return of the Jedi syndrome, where it's echoing a lot of what we've seen in the previous films, trying to kind of wrap it up. But it doesn't feel like it delivers anything that kind of tops what we've seen before. This really does feel kind of like the original Star Wars trilogy in some ways, where you kind of have like the naive introduction film, which is kind of a surprise hit that people love the second one which is the darker one that just really nails the narrative and all the character aspects and then the third one that kind of wraps it all up you know echoes moments from the previous ones kind of gives you what you want the big action scenes but feels a little bit emptier so i enjoyed the movie a lot i think the action you know we've talked about was unbelievably incredible to watch but as a satisfying character story for Bourne, I just found it a little less than uh, Bourne Supremacy. See, that's where I'd actually disagree. I actually consider this to be the best the franchise has to offer. Um, as far as the plotting, yeah, it's razor thin, but I think I kind of like that about it. It's just... Mm-hmm. The the thing about it is it it gets rid of all of the... Sub all the government scenes, like we know that Treadstone is really corrupt, so it just really has bare minimum of that. We know that Bourne's on the run. It's just a lean chase movie that's really, really fun, and I think it has the best action that the franchise has. I think that it's the best paced out of all of it. I I think the big thing with these movies are that. There's sort of this prestige about it with uh, Paul Greengrass coming on board that these are thinking man's action movies, and they really aren't. Like uh, Six Underground requires more of your brain power, not because Six Underground is a smart movie, but because you have to suspend your disbelief in certain scenes. With the Bourne movies, you just sort of are on autopilot, but it's a good autopilot, and it delivers an action experience, which is what... Paul Greengrass brought to it in Born Supremacy. And I think he just ramps it up more in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually the second mention of uh, Six Underground we've had on the podcast so far. Just uh, for those yeah. keeping track. I don't know why we keep talking about this film. Because it's amazing. <laughs> Is it? I love it. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this film for me works best when it's doing exactly what you said. When it's a chase film and Born is on the run or trying to get answers. But then it hits this sort of block uh, about the last 20, 25 minutes of the film where he gets to the, uh, what's the name of the guy? Uh, Dr. Hish, I believe it is. Right. Um, and he's he, you finally see how the sausage is made. 
as the saying goes. And I, I couldn't care less. Well, I don't think there's anything in this, you know, huge revelation that's that's shocking. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like when you actually get there, you're like, oh, yeah, sure. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I agree. And it's the sort of revelation where it's like, you understand how many, like, military men are actually sent out like that in America, like Black Forest? The thing about Jason Bourne is he is sort of, a lot of people were like, man, this is original. This is so different than Bond. He's really just a martial arts version of any protagonist in a paranoid 70s thriller. I mean, he's kind of outside of the bookworm aspect. He's, you know, very much uh, Robert Redford in Three Days of the Condor. And he's, as much as they try and distinguish him from Bond, he's kind of just like if Bond woke up one morning and was like, who am I? What am I doing? Did I really kill 200 people at that volcanic base? Like... Oh, God, they were only henchmen. They had families. And then he blames the government for making him do it. You know, that's definitely the case. He does echo those 70s heroes. But he also reminds me a lot of a lot of the 80s action heroes. You know, whether it be like Rambo or a lot of the ones played by Seagal or Van Damme or whatever, where they exist to be the most efficient person at any thing, like at any task required of them. And other characters just speak of them in odd tones, being like, we can't believe who this guy is. It's Jason Bourne. He can do anything. It's like they exist to be his kind of hype people. Oh, yeah. Every government official serves as a Colonel Troutman. Like, Yes, Colonel, exactly. Colonel Troutman is essentially a character just set there. And I love Colonel Troutman to be like, he was trying to eat things. I'll make a, gilgo, a, a billy goat puke. He's trying to be the best. Yeah. Yeah. And they do that all the time with Jason Bourne. And the big thing about Jason Bourne that sort of distinguishes him from those, which, I mean, he is very much Rambo, but he's actually just Wolverine without the claws. Like, this is just Weapon X. Oh, totally, yeah. Down to even having Mr. Striker. And it's interesting that the Bourne franchise gets really popular kind of around the same time as the X-Men franchise, too. Why Jason Bourne is so popular is because he was sort of an embodiment of our rage against things that we're not proud of. Like, you know, all the horrible things that our government does. But beyond that, it really never went far enough to make a statement about it. At the end, it's not about oil or, you know, what we did in Iraq or something like that. It's just about a guy who was made to be a trained killer for his government. That's it. That's because post uh 9-11 america was a really weird place like there was this acknowledgement that governments don't necessarily do good things all the time um there was this general fear and paranoia and we don't know what's coming to get us but we hadn't yet really figured out like how to work that into a real story or work that into some what of a message and so there's all these movies back then were just like yeah, and then the CIA is going to come, I guess. Like, sure, the CIA is there. I mean, in one shot of Casino Royale, the opening just sort of <laughs> displays what they are striving for with the Jason Bourne character, where, you know, you have that noirish black and white, and Bond is in there to hit his last mark for his government, and the establishing shot of him grabbing the gun while there's a picture of his family and kids there does everything that the Bourne movies try to eventually build pathos with, but in one shot. 
it seems to me too a lot of the kind of the pessimism of that sort of Bush era. Um, you remember early on after 9-11, there was a lot of movies about the Iraq war and about 9-11 and audiences did not respond to them. They just kept, it was like each one kept kind of tanking. And yeah, Hollywood didn't know how to handle it. Exactly. And it feels like they eventually figured out to work those themes into movies like this or the dark Knight, and audiences really grabbed onto it because it told them fictional stories that they were hugely invested in while working in themes that were relating to the modern day. That's always been something that's happened in fiction. But at this point, it seemed like Hollywood wanted to be very literal initially. Yeah, but while the Dark Knight trilogy, and specifically the Dark Knight, refers to terrorism, Jason Bourne doesn't mm-hmm. really have much to say about 9-11. I mean, right. or or the Iraq War, whereas United 93 also doesn't have much to say about 9-11 or the Iraq War, and that's what's great about it, because United 93 just shows you the event without any jingoism, without saying anything, but in a perfect way. Well, that's because United 93... United 93 is about the indomitable strength of people. Like, like it is about something. Um, even when you look at, like, Casino Royale, which came out the year before this, and I remember the fervor of Casino Royale, like, which we all love because it's a pretty great movie, but, like, the negative side of that was people going, you're turning my Bond into Jason Bourne. Because he did start tackling, or he did start feeling like a real world again. And, like, Bond came out of the gates with making a pretty intense statement on 9-11 and people making profits from that. and Like, like that's actually worked into the very plot of the show, or the movie. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's guide this back to talking about some of our actors that have returned in this film. Obviously, Matt Damon's back as Jason Bourne for the third of his four trips into the character. Um, how do you the think... The role he, he was born to play. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. How have we made Sorry. it two episodes without making that joke? I have no idea. I've been sitting on that for a while. <laughs> I wonder how the single guy made that dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> I run a Mission Impossible podcast that mainly focuses on the TV show. I'm already a dad. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, what about Cam? What did you think? How, he, how did uh, Matt Damon do? I feel like Matt Damon, we are seeing him at his like movie star wattage you know, best. Like This is Matt Damon doing a lot with obviously very frustrating work circumstances. And I often question with especially these Greengrass-born movies, how much of an idea Matt Damon has in terms of the overall scope of the movie while he's shooting it, given the way that um, Greengrass works, assembling his sequences, it's got to just be like shooting fragments at a time and Damon being like, I guess. But I felt like he he is so crucial to this franchise for grounding it and making it, you know, making himself this anchor that you follow through. And I think this is one of his more committed action hero performances. And there's an intensity to him in this movie that it's funny when you get those, you know, kind of flashbacks to the Bourne identity where it's kind of this like more, um, you know, a baby faced young Matt Damon versus what we're seeing here, which is more of a hard edged, um, you know, secret agent type. So I think he's incredibly effective in this film. Uh, what about you, Aaron? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think Matt Damon does a good job. I-, I really do. It's just that he doesn't have a ton to work here with here. He's mainly just look serious and scowl and do some action sequences. And he is commanding. But I, I think that 
tends to be more because of the filmmaking than because he's really being given a chance to uh, truly captivate us. Um, it gets a little more interesting towards the end with him, but even then, I just don't think he gets to really show his range much here. Mm-hmm. He's kind of just serious and grim and moody the entire time. He's like, you know what he is? He, he's Angel from Buffy back in the day. I think he gets those moments of humor, though, you know, where he calls Pamela and is like, you know, you look tired, Pamela. You know, like he's kind of he's fun in moments like you work in those little bits of humor or the little human moments with, uh, you know, the other asset played by Edgar Ramirez or even the Julia Stiles character. I feel like there's enough. You know, I mean, I said earlier this the Bourne character lacks the arc he had in Supremacy, which I thought was really effective or even in Identity. But I feel like, you know. Matt Damon is doing a lot with a little, like a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually kind of how I feel. I mean, this, I've said it many times, this is a thinly plotted movie, but Matt Damon commits to every single bit of it. And you could never just look at this and be like, oh, that's a lazy Matt Damon performance. Because he's just always effective. I mean, this is one year after what I consider to be one of the best performances of his career in The Departed, where he is the slimy government asshole that Jason Bourne would hate. And obviously it's not on the same level of that, but he definitely doesn't slouch here. I think all the actors do a great job of what they have. I would say he doesn't do anything bad. I just don't think he's given that much to work with in terms of range. But that's just where Jason Bourne is as a character at the time. Agreed. Yeah, I find myself really wishing that they hadn't locked this into being so tied with the second movie and had made this one the, like, this is eight years later, who knows where he is and what's happening, and build the world that way instead of being like, no, no, half this movie is part of the second one. I kind of like that this movie uses just all the pathos from Supremacy to allow itself to be just a fun little chase movie, action movie ride where you can't just be like, oh, this is just a glorification of violence because you're like, well, remember what happened in the second movie? (laughs) Which if you take this on its own, it does seem like a glorification of violence. But it also has like an immediacy because it follows so shortly after. Like it's, you're still kind of barreling after the events of what happened in the previous one. I don't know that like the average, you know, movie gore really thought that much. I can't say that I thought that much about it when I saw it in 2007. But I did feel like watching them in fairly close proximity for this podcast, I felt like the momentum carried from one to the other in a way that was somewhat effective. Agreed. I think the thing about these movies is that they're designed so that you really don't think much about them critically. It doesn't give you a chance to think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't, it, it's mindless. It doesn't engage you in any real thought, but it does what it does very effectively, and you can't deny the quality of yeah. it. But mm-hmm. that chase scene, though, basically, it's like, oh, it's so good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, which chase scene are yeah, you talking exactly. about? That's though? what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, I was specifically speaking of the chase scene with Julia Stiles, but any of mm-hmm. them. It would still apply for any of them. Born versus Dash, though, is so great. Well, that, that whole entire sequence, yeah, yeah, that sequence is what I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. From the, it's in Tangiers where it's based. Basically, the whole thing in Tangiers from beginning to end is the best bit of the film, hands down. It has perfect momentum, especially as he's hopping from rooftop to rooftop, and that jump, that effective jump, where they actually had the cameraman jump through the window with him. Which I mean, you know, 
windows break in movies all the time and it doesn't really do stuff so uh fuck you anybody who says this is a thinking man's action movie but (laughs) it really does like have a perfect momentum and then it leads to a fight scene that is like a shaky cam version of like the hand-to-hand combat you see in the raid films well so you know what it is and i think cam hit hit this earlier it's that for all that you can say about paul greengrass's shooting style um he and his production team understand geography of action and how important that is like it's something that a lot of mid-grade action films tend to forget uh being very careful to show where everyone is and where they are in relation to each other and oh from where julia styles is sitting she can't see him but she can see the other one all of that little work they do helps it helps keep the audience engaged. It helps you understand what's happening so that there's never a point where you're having to go, wait a minute, why is Bourne jumping from that building to that building when he was in the other one? Because you always know where Bourne is doing, what he's doing, and why. It's just, it is delightful. I'm a big, big, uh, I get hard onto action geography in films. It's one of the things I like to look for. And it's nice when they nail it. What I also love in that chase too is the moment of calm where we get that second where Julia Stiles is like looking out the window trying to figure out where the um you know Desh the asset is. Damon just stops on the rooftop and is watching and then the cops are stopping and watching him and it's like this moment of just waiting because you know the action's about to kick in again. But it's a confidence move because a lot of movies would not have the confidence to do that. Um, drawing maybe a questionable example, but a great action scene. You know, you think of um, the Phantom Menace with the big lightsaber battle with Darth Maul. And you have that moment where all the barriers go up and Darth Maul's pacing back and forth. Qui-Gon's meditating. It's all character based. And it's the type of moment in an action scene that if you can pull it off, I think is hugely effective. Well, this actually kind of reminds me of something that, I mean... People who will listen to me on Mission Impossible will not hear me talk about this for a long, long time. But Mission Impossible Fallout was designed in a lot of ways by Christopher McQuarrie to have these beats that keep Mm -hmm. the amount of insane action in that movie from overwhelming audiences. Which, I mean, we mentioned Six Underground, let's mention it again. That movie overwhelms audiences. And if you just look at Born Ultimatum, it is wall-to-wall action. Same with Supremacy. But Paul Greengrass knows where to put those small little breaths and he makes them short just enough to catch your breath, but still to like feel like a roller coaster for you. Like they feel very tense. Exactly. Even if they are these moments of calm. Yeah, because you're just like waiting for like the trigger to go off again. Well, and and they're not just a pause, like they serve a purpose too. Mm -hmm. It's a moment to truly sit and collect yourself and realize what everyone's doing and where they are. And so it it really serves to help the audience understand things before shit starts exploding. And that kind of applies too to the chase sequence at Waterloo Station at the beginning. There's that moment where um, the reporter starts talking to Jason Bourne and you've got that sort of 30 seconds to breathe where he gives you a little bit of what's going on. But you're still tense the entire time. It's perfect. That whole sequence, that Waterloo sequence, I think might be my favorite in the movie. Like, I don't know. I really do go back and forth between the Tangier chase and that Waterloo station uh, sequence. I mean, that Waterloo sequence, I remembered being just on the edge of my seat, seeing it in theaters. And that was like the one section that really did grab me when I saw it the first time. And watching it again, it still worked just gangbusters. And one upgrade on, on my experience is I know that station very well. And they used the geography correctly. They actually used the right entrances and exits. 
I was sitting there going, that's exactly where you would be going. And he's going in that direction. That's the door you would come out. So yeah, Waterloo Station fans, they heard it first. Yeah, I feel like we haven't really lumped on as much praise to Paul Greengrass as we really should. I mean, he he uses a very simple approach to storytelling, but the structure works. Like every action beat hits just at the right moment. You see exactly the ways that Bourne processes how he's going to get out of trouble. It's always taut. It's always intense. And there's really not a wasted moment in this movie. I couldn't, I can't imagine going through here and being like, eh, I could cut off this. Well, I want to say that this or supremacy was nominated for editing. Yeah. This, uh, this one was nominated and won. There yep. you go. Yeah. Every award this movie was nominated for it won. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. It, it also won best sound mixing and sound effects editing. So, yeah. Well, We've spoken about the pacing and the the camera work, but let's speak a bit more about the characters. And I can finally be happy that Julia Stiles has second billing in this film and actually has a bit more of a presence after three films. Yeah, she she actually does the thing. Yeah. She's a bit wasted in this movie still, though. I, I love Julia Stiles. I'll take it over the first one. Definitely. Oh, for sure. And the second. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, though, Julia Stiles is put in the position here in many ways... Um, as Franca Patente in the original Bourne film, they even echo moments from that first film where Julia Stiles is dyeing her hair and all that sort of stuff. And Julia Stiles, to me, is just she lacks the expressive qualities that Franca Patente had. So I feel like there's not as much of a connection between her and Damon. Like there's definitely allusions to her having a relationship with him in the past before he went to Treadstone, um, but. I just don't really feel like this stuff's coming across. I feel like it's more just there for us to pick up and go, okay, cool. But I felt like this character is still just not given enough for me to really latch on to. That's strange. I already got it. I the, the scene where they're barely talking to each other about their past, I I, dig, I really dug that scene. I thought they really communicated well without saying much. It's interesting. I never really thought about how similar she was to Franca Potemka's character in the uh, first two movies, but... I'm pretty sure she even ends up uh, in in a very similar situation uh, to Franca in the second movie, too. I don't want to necessarily give an explicit spoiler to the fourth one. Yeah. But she is the exact same character, basically. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Nathan? (laughs) I've never seen the fourth film or the fifth film. Because once I came out of this, I was just like, that's enough. That's all I need of that. (laughs) Yeah. But... I, I think Julia Stiles is good. I think just by nature, this movie is designed not to make you think about the relationships between the characters. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's weird that we said this before, uh, me and Aaron talking in a chat, but we're really kind of giving this movie a lot of backhanded compliments, but it is effective at everything it sets out to do. Well, yeah, and I think the movie... As much as I say it kind of lacks the connection for me in, ter- in terms of the relationship that you got in the first one, that movie also spends far more time establishing that relationship. Whereas this one, I mean, how long are her and Matt Damon really together? Like maybe half an hour, 40 minutes? It's not that long. And then she's put on a bus and that's the last we see of her. So like it's kind of trying to do it more in a shorthand way. Um, I don't know if at the time that they thought they would bring any of those characters back. So I'm curious like kind of why but yeah i i feel like any character in this franchise who isn't 
like in the boardrooms or the conference rooms, especially the women, kind of gets done dirty, at least the side characters. Because, like, Julia Stiles, you're right, she doesn't have much to do in any of the movies on her own, yet she's one of the kind of major figures in all four of them. But, like, uh, Pamela Landing, like, her character, she she gets to be a lot more robust in this. She gets to be more of a character who gets to do something. She has a goal. And it, it feels like the thrust of the plot and the story is all happening with those characters, the people in the boardrooms, and then Julia Stiles and Matt Damon are just kind of like, you know what? We're pretty and we're enjoying this. And, and let's just kind of show up and try to do our thing. And we just stare at each other a lot quietly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, I, I did enjoy their sequence together. Uh, I think it was Scott. Like, he said it right that, that that moment where they do start to allude to the deeper relationship they had, they did that very well. I just wish that had been expanded upon. Right. Um, show me more about that connection so that these are the characters I'm interested in instead of the other ones. Well, that's the thing about these films I've uh, I've sort of mentioned in the previous episodes is it doesn't do a lot for female characters, the Bourne series, at least up until no. this point. And you think of that scene with um, Jason Bourne and Nikki Parsons. That's the last time she speaks in the film. She doesn't say a single word. She's, she's in another 20 minutes, the whole chase sequence through Tangier, getting on the bus, uh, dying her hair, but she doesn't say a word. Really? I'll do you one better. I don't think this series does much for characters. That's also fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of them are more like um, archetypes than actual characters. I do think, though, Pamela Landy is a very, I think, well-drawn character. So I would say that she is probably the best written female character they have in that franchise. And I think her role feels boosted up even more in this film. She's obviously the one who's more often than not in the right or the one who knows what's going on in all of these scenes with the, you know, her and David Strathern going back and forth. He's the one that's coming out looking like an ass. Yeah. I'm glad they put that character in of uh, Noah Vosen to give, to give the CIA someone like a heat, heat magnet, basically. Mm-hmm. Cause you couldn't have Pam Landy leading the chase against Bourne again. Well, she's kind of the hero of the movie. Yep. Yeah. She's the one that's actually going to affect change. Matt Damon doesn't really do that. A lot of what Matt Damon's mission is is entirely personal. It's about finding out who he is and, you know, what his life could be going forward. For her, I mean, she's the one who's ultimately going to be in many ways the whistleblower on everything that's been going on. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad they chose to bring Pam Landy back. Um always happy to see Joan Allen in the film. But um, apart from that, no other female characters in the whole film? No, not really. Other yeah. than anonymous, you know, people typing at computers. Yeah. Not even a Michelle Monaghan. No. Nope. No. I don't even think they ever show his mom in the franchise either. Because the fourth one is all about, like, his dad and how much his dad knew about everything and, and how it's tied to his family. But even there, it's his dad and never a mom. Does the Bourne franchise just hate women? Isn't that the story of like all action heroes, though, of a certain era yes. that was always daddy issues? So mm-hmm. I, I can totally get behind that. I'm curious, though, what did you guys think of David Strathern as this opposite to Landy? I mean, David Strathern's coming in shortly after an Oscar nomination for Good Night and Good Luck. This was the real, this was probably the Strathern high, um, I think, probably of all time for his career. And, uh, you know, how did you think he fared opposite? Joan Allen and hunting down Jason Bourne. Oh, he's great. I mean, he is the meme. Like when he shows up, he says, <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's Jason Bourne. And every line he says, he 
he doesn't chew up scenery, but he chews up just the right amount of scenery. I mean, he, everybody who acts in this movie does their job. It's <laughs> it's inexplicable that I'm giving so many backhanded compliments because I think all the quality is there, you know? I'm just glad they had someone on to take the heat from Pam Landy. Um, and it's a bit of a thankless role having to be the guy who's always outwitted by someone. <laughs> I love the moment where he's like, that's not true because I, you know, I'd be talking to you face to face in your office right now. Oh, it's so great when, uh, yeah, when uh, Noah Vosen has taken all his people out of the out of the um, CIA headquarters and Damon's broken in. Like it's so genius. I just got that naked gun scene in my head where everyone slaps their forehead when that happened. Just like, oh, genius. But I also like that um, Noah isn't like the kind of. Um, you know, he's not the Brian Cox, just like mustache twirling, like evil man in the room. He's a guy who obviously has um, very objectionable motives, but he's someone who's more of a bureaucratic type than a actual, you know, sociopathic mastermind. I think anytime you get David Strathern in a movie, like this is kind of what he does. He's great at being, uh, I call them the gentle villain, uh, where like they will do evil, horrible, unrepentant things. And he'll do it calmly because, no, no, there's a logic to it. Like, between that and the conference room leader, like, he's done this kind of a role over and over and over again. And kind of like anytime you have William H. Macy show up in a movie, David Strathern always brings his A game. So I'm, I'm down with him always showing up and stuff. He's fun. And in a lot of movies, he would be the less showy villain. You know, the asset would be the big flashy one that the audience actually cares about. And you kind of get at the end sort of like a, oh, you know, the Noah character was arrested, you know, in like a just brief tagline because that character is not that interesting. Whereas I feel like in this movie, I am just gripped every time he's on screen. Almost definitely. I mean, they cast everybody in the government so well from David Strathairn to uh, Brian Cox to Scott Glenn. I mean, you just get all these incredible character actors. Scott Glenn's there because of Silence of the Lambs, right? Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a bit of typecasting, but I mean, it works in the same way that Tommy Lee Jones was there in that most recent one because of the fugitive. Sure. Yeah. The only other character I wanted to sort of tackle before we moved into anything else was Edgar Ramirez playing Paz, which is the Black Briar agent, which is meant to be better than born. Uh, he's somewhat referred to as, although he, he doesn't seem to be anywhere near born. Yeah, I mean that's the issue with these. I won't even call it an issue because it really isn't. They always get somebody who is supposed to be the counter to Bourne. I mean, Carl Urban, Clive Owen, Edgar Ramirez. They're always supposed to be like the person who's trained with the capability of Bourne who could take out Bourne. But we know these movies and we know these actors and we know that A, they are capable of more or, you know, later show that they were capable of more. And B, that Jason Bourne's going to make it out of this movie. I, that was my issue with it was the fact that he Jason Bourne is a treadstone operative, but they make a big point of saying that Paz is a a, a Black Briar with a, a operative, which is meant to be better than treadstone. And everything that Bourne's defeated so far has been treadstone. So this is supposed to be the new nemesis, but he doesn't even doesn't even make a scratch. Well, it's the problem you run into with these kinds of movies is that because you're doing the dumb action movie, you have to up your stakes every time and you start hitting points where 
you're trying to up your stakes and make something that is dangerous to your characters so that you can believably think maybe he's not going to make it out. But you also are sitting there doing double duty and trying to make Bourne look like a badass, like specifically. And it's hard to make someone have a struggle to win when they're also looking like a badass. Like, I think honestly, out of all three of the movies, I think the first one handles the actual agent to agent fights the best because you either have the super intense quick bloody action of that biker guy who he fights in the apartment which is brutal and intense and everybody gets hurt and it's shocking or you have his fight with Clive Owen, which instead plays like a chess match it's a lot of um quiet and thought and deliberation before you make a move and that adds to the tension by the time you get here it's just a he's a he's a minion Aaron, you touched on something i really find in a lot of these dumb action movies as you will say um where they try to get somebody who can counter their protagonist but yeah, they try and have it both ways where they make their protagonist uh, a badass. One of my favorite examples is in the movie Demolition Man, when you have Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes, both as like expert marksmen, but they're both shooting at each other in a museum and barely landing a shot. Like, <laughs> There's not an entire moment. John Wick does it really well, where you actually see him be winded and there is actual like combat i honestly think they should have gotten whoever played the the dash character in the tangier sequence to be the edgar ramirez role because he actually seemed to counter him yeah and this kind of reminds me a little bit too of this uh popular franchise thing of you know as you said uh scott you know this is the next level and in this movie they start talking about Blackbriar, and you're like well Blackbriar, what's that oh that's the next thing after treadstone it reminds me a lot of you know the first order comes after the empire or whatever the hell they called the new generation of cyborgs in terminator um the last terminator movie versus what came before it's like uh it's basically the same thing guys (laughs) or every genetically modified dinosaur to be stronger than the t-rex in any of the jurassic world movies exactly it's like they throw off a name so you're supposed to like sit forward like oh well, how's this going to play out? But Edgar Ramirez does not come across as more competent uh, than um, than Carl Urban in um, Supremacy. I think Carl Urban was more effective because he had more screen time. And I do think the big car chase that Carl Urban has is more effective than the car chase in this film. So, <laughs> Yeah, Carl Urban is somehow one of the most developed actual physical villains in this franchise somehow. Like, I, yeah. I would have expected that, considering he's literally just in it for the money. Like, he's just paid to go do this stuff. I think that Edgar Ramirez serves his role as more being a mirror to Jason Bourne for that third act to sort of hit home. And it, it works. It works as well as it should, but it really, he, he never really comes off as a legitimate threat to Bourne. Well, and it also is replicating a moment from the last film where after the car crash, um, you know, in this case, the Ramirez character is like seemingly, seemingly crippled, like in his car and Matt Damon just walks away and leaves him. And that's the same thing he did to Carl Urban in Supremacy in that movie. Um, uh, Carl Urban died in that sequence. But in this case, Ramirez lives and then wants to know why he didn't kill him. So you're kind of getting more of a payoff off a you know, thematic idea that existed in the previous film. And that's really what Ramirez's main job is. I mean, he's 
important early on in the scene in the um, in the um, Waterloo terminal um, for assassinating the journalist. But other than that, he's there for that moment to stand out there on the building over the water and talk to Matt Damon about, you know, their lifestyle. Exactly. And it, it's not as much a legit criticism of the film. I mean, we talked about all those other examples. Those are like full on ridiculous examples, especially like one I always think of as like uh, the super predator and the new predator movie. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's a little ridiculous. Like that, this movie manages to work as well as it does, despite being so stupid in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering how much of this comes back to the script because like you, Edgar Ramirez is this character. I think you, you, you're right, Nathan. He does a good job. Like none of our issues with the character, I think are really related to Edgar Ramirez's feet. It's just that he doesn't really have much. He doesn't do as much as you think he should. And I can easily see a lot of these issues being caused by them being like, okay, well, we got to kind of have to be okay with this. We'll, we'll try to figure it out on set and maybe tweak some of the dialogue. But like, I'm thinking it's that fly by night approach that they had to have to the story that's causing this. One of my favorite moments though with Ramirez is when he's activated, he's just like laying in his bed, like staring blankly ahead and it reminded me a lot of um, Michael Keaton in Batman Returns, where he's just like sitting in Gotham Manor, just staring off into space. The bat signal goes off and then he suddenly comes to life. It's like these assets have no life other than to spring to life when they are called upon. That is a weirdly deep cut. <laughs> I know, right? Um, well, right. Before we move on to the question, which uh, which c- consumes us all, is, has anyone got any final thoughts about the Bourne Ultimatum? I'll throw it out to Aaron first. Um, I mean, <sighs> I, I really want to like this movie more than I do. Um, I think there's a lot here that's great about it. I think that the actors are giving it their all. And, and it's still, like, I, I remember thinking this when I saw it, and I've seen it probably twice since then. Like, like this is a perfectly fine, fun action movie with some legitimately great sequences. I think that Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass... Uh, like the creators should definitely be proud of what they put out. It's just that, man, it could be better. And and that's kind of a frustrating experience. Sometimes watching something where you're going, Oh man, if only you did just this little bit more, that you'd be a legitimately great movie instead of a fun movie. Nathan. Yeah. I see. I'm kind of, I I'm aligned with you, but I'm not aligned with you, Aaron. I really, think that this is as good as this script could have handled itself and i don't think that's a bad thing i think this is as good of a born movie as we've gotten i think that it takes all the things that are great about the born franchise and encapsulates it into one movie that never wastes your time and i never would like i didn't go see this in a theater but if i went to go see this in a theater I wouldn't come out of it feeling robbed. I mean, I picked up the box set, which was $15 every single, I would have paid $15 for born ultimatum because it effectively does everything that it sets out to do. And it, it's my favorite of the franchise. Interesting. What about you, Cam? For me, like this movie is just such a triumph technically that it's hard for me to discount it and say like, ah, you know, it's not as quite as good as the previous one. It's just like, it's working at a level 
we wish most movies would work at when we go to see, you know, a popcorn movie in the theater. Um, You know, as I said, like the action is incredible. I just want to give a shout out to John Powell, who I think his score at this point is a character all to itself. I think his work in this franchise is absolutely fantastic and brings so much life to the to each movie and to these action sequences. When that music kicks in, that's a big part of the reason that you know you're hugely invested and on the edge of your seat. It's like the Bond theme at this point. Um, for me, like it just comes down to you know it, it does have more of that Return of the Jedi. We have to wrap things up. We've got to give payoff. The payoff isn't as strong as I would have hoped. But at the end of the day, Matt Damon. He's in the water and he's swimming away, keeping the metaphor of Bourne being reborn in each film in water. So, like, it really does bookend this franchise beautifully. Um, unfortunately, there was two more to go, so we'll see how that pays off in the future. But in terms of, you know, ending a Bourne trilogy with Matt Damon, I think it's a pretty fantastic, you know, effort. Hey, it's got the Moby. <laughs> I, it's interesting you mentioned the whole uh, reborn in water because that was something I definitely noted down. It does have this theme again because the first one starts in water and this one ends in water more or less. And it does have that finale feel to it. So it's it's interesting that they do have two more films. And I'll be, I'll be curious to figure out why they have two more films because I don't recall them. So there is that. Um, I had two little notes uh the first one was did you guys know that norton antivirus is cia approved (laughs) (laughs) so bizarre seeing that on my screen uh, why on earth would they use norton antivirus i mean i I guess was it cia approved in those days who knows Uh, (laughs) and can anyone explain to me why Bourne found that bit of paper in that guy's briefcase that had the cia's address and then instantly knew what to do from that did he not know the address beforehand plot ah okay plot. Yep. okay i guess it was just it was pointing towards the new york division right is that why he just knew to go to the new york headquarters i guess that I, I i just sort of saw it and thought why on earth does he need to know that information but right plot i guess you're right yeah yeah okay well here we go the question does the born ultimatum join the knock list uh, gentlemen, you're our guests, so we're going to go to Aaron first. Is the ultimatum making the list? Honestly, I don't think so. I think it is a perfectly great, fun movie involving spies, but because so much of it is wrapped up in Bourne's specific past, and so much of it is wrapped up in in really internal matters it ends up not really feeling like a spy movie so much as just a movie about corruption in the u.s government Hmm. but at least that's me that's my read okay what about you nathan um first just to respond to aaron it's interesting that you said that this movie was about something (laughs) um (laughs) no 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 actually i grappled with this a lot so you guys obviously historically had your conflict with born identity where it didn't end up making the knock list, but it came really close. Then you had born supremacy, which made the knock list, which as it should, it, it really like was groundbreaking as far as its style. It's not personally like one of my favorite spy movies and neither is this one. But if I have to put like an example for the born franchise, I would put the best one. And in my opinion, this is the best one. So yeah, it goes in the knock list for me. 
Okay, mm. okay. So we have a split. And this is the first time we have four votes for the Noclist. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes next. Cam, you're up. Yeah, I struggled quite a bit with this one. And I'm going to come down on a yes for this one because I think when we look at this as, you know, uh, the way they've taken Bourne's story, the way they're paying off everything they've been build, you know, building up to the last couple movies, I think it really does deliver with the exception of that big reveal with Albert, um, Albert Finney at the end. It's all well acted. It works, but it's not like a big bombshell going off. But in terms of the filmmaking, in terms of the characterizations, in terms of everything they've done, building this franchise from, you know, step one to here, I think it pays off so wonderfully that I have a hard time imagining myself not saying to someone, if you want a spy action movie, don't watch The Bourne Ultimatum. That one's not on the knock list. I'm like, this is one of the best examples out there of a spy action film. So I'm going to say a yes for those reasons. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, it's all on you, man. <laughs> well, this is uh, this is going to be very interesting because I, I will uh, I'll cut right to the chase, and it's a no from me. Oh shit! <laughs> um, so basically, where I sit with this film is the born identity was like a, a journey of self discovery. It wasn't really a spy film. It was it was yeah it was a character piece. The born supremacy was a spy thriller. I would say this feels just like an action film. With maybe the odd mm. element of spy. Now, not, I'm not knocking this film. I mean, there's plenty of great films that haven't made our knock list so far. I'm thinking of Man from Uncle, for instance. That's a fantastic film that has some spy elements and is mostly an action film. Right. And I feel like Born Ultimatum, it's just like one step below supremacy. And if I'm, I, I, and that doesn't mean that we can only have one film from a series. We could have all of the films if they're good enough. But I just feel like mm-hmm. this film has taken a step back from the spy and it's more about the uh, heart pumping action. And that's for me why it's a no. Interesting. You see, where I struggle with this is knowing where we're going. Um, you know, the next two Borns don't exactly have the um, the level of prestige attached to them that this one does. And so that's where I'm kind of battling with myself and that supremacy was an easy in for me whereas this one i did struggle a little more with so i guess i have a bit of the ground to give potentially but i i i I get a little wary just about knowing that we're saying that born supremacy is the only representative worthy of inclusion i guess i guess that's where i struggle yeah i agree uh i'm I'm gonna lean on aaron to uh to help back me up on this one well but no like so I struggle with that too a little bit, but like Born Supremacy feels the most like a spy movie. Like even when you get into Born Legacy, is I actually kind of enjoy that for the most part. I think they do some interesting things with the program, but even that movie, it's not really about people being spies. It's about the government trying to clean up. Uh, it's a cover up, and the people affected by it. And four, like, I'll be honest, I watched four around the same time. Um, I, I watched the whole Born franchise like five weeks ago before I even knew I was doing this. I just <laughs> happened to watch the whole franchise on a lark. And then you asked me to do this and I was like, yes, I will rewatch Ultimatum. <laughs> but I don't even remember what four is about. Uh, I remember a few <laughs> snippets of it. And I remember like ultimately it had something to do with his dad. But the franchise as a whole seems more like... Uh, 
yes, there are people who would be spies involved in this, but this isn't about spies. This is about what happens when you uh, try to cover up something and it gets found out. Like, there's mm. never really a point where Bourne is actively working with or against foreign agents, like, like actual governments. It's never about the governments. It's always about a cover-up within the U.S. government. I think Nathan said it earlier. This is a, a chase film. Yeah. Right. It's It has our characters that we love uh, from our previous films, but it really isn't a spy film in any sense of the word, other than it has characters that have been spies or work for agencies. Yeah. But is North by Northwest not a chase film? Yeah. Or or even, like, I mean, the other Bourne movies kind of are, too. Yeah. This is exactly the same as Supremacy. Like... As much as this is supremacy without the fat, and it's the question like, do you want the steak minus the fat? Well, so here's the question though, and honestly, I'm, this is me asking are any of the Bourne movies actually traditional spy films? Uh, like, do any of them involve the game of statecraft, really? Or is it all entirely just a chase films about uh, corrupt government officials trying to cover up a mistake? You're absolutely correct on that, but but you need to understand the impact that these films had on the spy genre, regardless. Absolutely meritable. And you yeah. could say that Supremacy, while it did hit the ground running with the style, this is where the style is even more refined. Well, so let me ask you then, what does Ultimatum do that Supremacy doesn't? And that's an excellent question. That, that's where I'm struggling, honestly, because I am battling with myself at the moment about – because when you have these two Paul Greengrass films, they're both kind of doing the same types of things. So it's like do we just you know induct the one that did it we feel the best and we just need the one representative of the Paul Greengrass-born films? And maybe that's the case because when we talk about James Bond, you know, Scott and I have inducted um, Goldeneye and we've inducted Dr. No. Those are from – completely different directors, completely different representations of James Bond on screen. So it makes more sense versus what we're seeing here where you have two movies made, what, three years apart that in a lot of ways are very similar to one another. Although I, I am going to sit here and now that we're talking about it, say that uh, I am going to, in the future, throw my imaginary has no weight decision on the knock list really for potentially born legacy, because for all that that movie is, it's very much a personal journey. It at least you can go, this is what being these agents does to a general, just generic uh, agent. Like this is the toll <laughs> it takes on them. You know, they have to do this and they have to take all these medications and it changes their bodies. And, and like, it, it can at least be, you can argue it from that standpoint. Okay. So, you think of North by Northwest, which sort of set the style for what later the Bond movies did. And then you have From Russia with Love, which came much later, or not even much later, just a few years later, and essentially does a lot of the same stuff that North by Northwest does, and a lot of the same stuff that Dr. No does. To say that that film could possibly be in the knock list, which I would put it in the knock list, despite it being derivative of the others, it really just questions are two similar movies that do essentially the same thing not allowed to both be in the knock list? Yeah, and that's the conflict. And But really thinking about it, I feel like I'm the one who's 
potentially going to waver either way, right? Like, um, I feel like I'm the one that's kind of the closest to maybe budging. I feel like you three are pretty set. Is that am I correct in that? You would be correct in that assessment. I'm decently set. I, <laughs> I'm getting less confident as you guys are talking, but yeah, I, <laughs> I'll stand by my morals. Sure, no compromise. Yeah, there's there's no budging me on this one. I I made up my mind when I watched it the first time. Even when I watched it back again the second time, I still was there. So ultimately, then. The answer is it doesn't make it on because if it's a split, it doesn't make it on the list. If I flip and say no, it doesn't make it on the list. So ultimately, neither way, um, you know, the Born Ultimatum is going to make it on the list. So I think I'm going to stick with my yes, but I think we're going to have more of a conflicted no on the Born Ultimatum, which is actually, I think, more interesting and says maybe more for the movie that for some people it offers a lot and others it's maybe a step down in a way that doesn't quite deserve the inclusion. I think that's actually more of a tribute to the movie than a firm one way or the other. I'm sure that when we get to the Bourne legacy and Jason Bourne, I might eat my words when I say this, but Mm. I don't know those films well enough to have an opinion already. Right. So I can't prejudge this film because the other ones might be worse. That's fair because that's how it was when we all saw Born Ultimatum too. Like we knew that they were working on Legacy at the time and it came shortly after, but it's still, we hadn't seen it. And Jason Bourne came out ages later. Um, so I think that's a fair way to view Born Ultimatum. Mm-hmm. Well, there you have it. It seems like it's our first tie. Uh, two yeses and two noes, and therefore. The Bourne Ultimatum is not making the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on the Bourne Ultimatum is complete and filed as classified. Now, gentlemen, Nathan, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Can you tell the folks at home a little bit more about the Impotable podcast and where they can find you? Yeah, um, I guess I'll, I'll take the lead as, as per usual. I will be the leader of this IMF. Uh, yeah, guys, if you guys are interested in hearing us talk about probably the one spy franchise that didn't take anything from the Bourne franchise's like impact on spy cinema. Uh, Listen to Mission Impotable. We have all of our podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts at Spotify, iTunes. We mainly go through Spreaker, but you know, you can go wherever we have our Twitter. Will you hear us sort of pimp you guys out and, pimp each other out we're kind of like uh we've been spy bros since the beginning so we sort of help each other but yeah if you guys want to dive into the mission impossible franchise from the very very beginning you can hear me and aaron every tuesday or sometimes wednesday life is hard you can also follow me on twitter at, at father baldor and you can hear nathan and i sometimes appear on one of us.net uh, i work with the host of that site to do a home release podcast and Nathan and I both show up on movie reviews too. Yeah. And you can also find me on Twitter at Nathan Flynn, not saying much of anything because I'm normally managing the impotable Twitter, (laughs) which is very active. So follow them on Twitter for sure. Exactly. And Instagram as well. You're over there too. Yes, we are. Thank you for plugging better than I can. (laughs) (laughs) It's all I do every day. Um, There we are. So, again, thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Uh, Cam, what are we doing next week? We are going to celebrate Christmas, Scott, and we're going to do that by revisiting 1996's The Long Kiss Goodnight, directed by Rennie Harlan and starring Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson. 
and written by Shane Black. That's right. Dun, 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 dun. There you go. I'm dreaming of a black Christmas. <laughs> well, on that note, grab your uh, mistletoe and jingle your bells as we'll be uh, doing our very first Christmas episode next week. Now, gentlemen, sorry for stealing your line, but your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Long Kiss Goodnight before next week. And don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. (laughs) 